Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us for the next installment of the NACTA Social Justice in College Athletics series. I am NACTA CEO Bob Vecchioni. We're so glad you could join us today to continue these important conversations around difficult topics in our industry and in the world. Today's topic, allyship, is important and is a key component of our ability to successfully incite positive and lasting change. Merriam-Webster defies allyship as a state or condition of being an ally, supportive association with another person, and specifically such association with the members of a marginalized or mistreated group to which one does not belong. This afternoon's session titled Working Together for a Better Future, a discussion about allyship, will discuss the path to becoming an ally and considerations for proactively choosing to participate in such a role. For today's discussion, we are excited to have an esteemed panel of individuals join us. NACTA Executive Committee Member Stevie Baker Watson, Associate Vice President for Campus Wellness and Director of Athletics and Recreational Sports at DePaul University will moderate our session. Our panelists will include Val Ackerman, Commissioner of the Big East Conference, Kevin White, Vice President, Director of Athletics and Adjunct Professor for Business Administration at Duke, and NACTA past president. And lastly, Dan Roller, anti-racism activist and managing director for ACRIS Project will provide insights on how they've practiced being an ally in their respective leadership positions. Panelists, thank you for joining us today. Before we begin, I'd like to remind each of you that uh, you, can, you can ask questions via the Zoom feature on your, the bottom of your Zoom window we will have time for questions towards the end of today's session. Uh, before I sign off, I just wanted to uh, embarrass Kevin White, if you will, and have everyone in their own unique way, wish him a happy birthday, which is coming oh. up this Friday. Oh. <laughs> so That's thank you again, everyone for joining <laughs> us. And Stevie, take it away. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. And people were worried about me on the video and sharing information. Uh, welcome everyone to our program today. Uh, big thank you to our NACTA Steering Committee for Social Justice Project, Lee Reed, China Jude, Ward Manuel, and Alan Green for bringing forward this webinar series and reminding us about these important conversations that not only we need to have, but we want to have as it relates to social justice activism and allyship. Um, as Bob noted, my name is Stevie Baker Watson. I'm not only a member of the executive committee of NACTA, but also the board of directors of MOA, which is the Minority Opportunity Athletic Association. And I encourage all of you who are not already members of MOA uh, to seek MOA membership for not only yourself, but those in the department. Um, so that way you can continue this conversation with us. Joining us again today is Val Ackerman from the Big East. Um, we also know her from other roles as the founding president of the WNBA and past president of USA Basketball and a board of directors member with Women Leaders in College Sports. Dr. Dan Roller, who I will tell you, we found out earlier this week, we actually were at the same high school at one moment in time. So how about that? He's with the ACRIS, uh, ACRIS Project and also is with Chicago Showing Up for Racial Justice and Organizing White Men for Collective Liberations and is also a facilitator with Opening Doors Diversity Project. Um, he's new to the NACTA family, so please do give a shout out to Dan when you have an opportunity to see him. And then finally, Dr. Kevin White, who is gonna have an illustrious birthday this Friday. 
We also know him from his other roles, such as the chair of the Division I Men's Basketball Committee, a member of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee Board of Directors, and a past president of both NACTA and the Division I Athletics Directors Association. So we are all here to talk about our experiences related to allyship and help encourage you all to move from intent and word to action. So let's get right in. I know we'll have a full hour with this. So I'm gonna start off with a, a lab softball question, starting with Dr. Uh, Dan Roller first. What should we consider when it comes to allyship? Well, thank you, Bob, and thank you, Stevie. Um, so there are a lot of um, things that we talk about when we talk about allyship, but I'm gonna talk about three things that we talk about when we train activists and we train uh, other human beings who are interested in allyship. We have a conversation really about um, three things. But before I jump into that, I, I also want to say uh, thank you to Alan Green and NACTA for even inviting me into this conversation today. And to be on a panel with Val and Kevin is really, really powerful. And I appreciate both of you for being in it. And I also want to acknowledge that I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for the many people who privileged, both privileged and marginalized who poured into me, trained me, challenged me, confronted me, and asked me to do this work. So, um, the three things that we talk about when we're training folks for allyship is we talk about your stake in the fight for racial justice. Why is it important to you? Why do you care? And, and when we ask this question, people have all kinds of answers. And some talk about, well, I was raised you know, care. I, these are part of the values that I was brought up with, or maybe they cite their faith. Um, Sometimes they talk about the relationship with people who are marginalized and oppressed um, and talk about the violence done to them inside racism um, and white supremacy. And that violence includes rape, murder, incarceration, and so much more. And when you are in relationship with someone who experiences that kind of violence, that's a very powerful stake. And as important as this conversation is about stake, we also flesh out two very important parts of the um, issue about stake. One is, is that we want all allies to recognize that if you are in this work, one of your most important stakes is yourself. In other words, if you truly step into this work, you are stepping onto a journey that is going to challenge you. It's going to cause you to experience dissonance and, and discomfort because you're stepping into something that you're not supposed to step into. Um, and because you are, you're gonna grow. You're gonna experience tremendous opportunity for yourself to liberate yourself. And so it's important that you name yourself as in your stake. And the last thing about stake that I wanna talk about is that the stake is a, is a two-sided coin. So on the one hand, we have the stake, you know, for those we love and care about or those values that we hold dear. We have ourselves, but the other thing we have to recognize about stake, and this is a part that is oftentimes not visible to us or that we don't consider, and that is we also have a stake in perpetuating the very systems that cause racial harm in the first place. And so what this means is that we have a stake, or I have a stake, I will say, in white supremacy, in racial capitalism, in the school to prison pipeline, among others. 
And we feel this tension if we step into allyship and we know that our stake in these systems is built in and no matter how liberal or woke we are, we have a stake in the status quo. We benefit from the way things are. And so that's, that's our conversation about stake. And then we have uh, com the second conversation we have is about accountability. So in the work for racial justice, and particularly in the activist world, accountability is a powerful anchor and driver of our work. And it should be, I think, for most allies, if not all. Um, and it is critical that we all can respond to this question about who it is that we are accountable to. And why it's critical is that, and I'm gonna say this twice, that the work of the ally is to actively support the movements for racial justice as these movements are defined by those most harmed by racism. In other words, allyship is not defined by those of us who are white and privileged. Allyship is defined by those who are most harmed by racism and it's defined by what they ask of us. And when we actively support those who we say we're accountable to. What that means is that we are building authentic relationships across difference. We listen with respect to their stories and we believe them. And when they ask for our help, we step in and do our best and make no mistake, we move into the work with accountability we're often gonna feel uncomfortable as we bump up against the many lessons that led us to accept our roles in these systems of harm in the first place. And the last thing um, that we talk about is um, what will we do? You know, all conversations typically end this way. And we ask the question like, so what are you going to commit to? What are you going to commit to that's going to require, require you to be brave, to step into the trouble, something not easy. For it is in doing this kind of action and brave allyship that you really learn what it means to be an ally. It's not the easy, it's the troubling. It is the important part to strongly consider to do this brave thing with others at your side and in community. So this is the reason why activists do their work in community. Um, you will rarely find an activist out there on the street by themselves. They're in community because it's that important. And lastly, it is critical that you do this work of committing to do something brave with full compassion for yourself and love for yourself and others. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Wonderful thoughts as we begin this conversation about allyship. Um, one of the things we talked about on Monday was this concept of stepping to fear and through fear, right? And I think that your statement was especially powerful when you said allyship is defined by those who are most harmed. Always good to remember that this is not a centering moment for us to tell our story as a privileged group, but really to listen and respond and empathize to those who are feeling marginalized. Val, could you share some thoughts with us about what you feel we should be considering when it comes to allyship? Yeah, happy to, Stevie. First, I just want to thank uh, Bob and NACTA for the chance to be here and Alan Green for his leadership. And it's, uh, it's an honor to be with uh, Mr. White, the birthday man. Um, oh. 
So happy to share a few words and uh, the benefit of some experiences I've had. Um, I'll, I'll share two thoughts, two, two kinds of thoughts, Stevie. One is, as I think about allyship, I think about what um, our sources of inspiration are. Um, because, you know, this is not a new topic. And there has been work done before us um, on this. Um, you know, um, we, we know the kinds of problems that we're dealing with now are not, are not new. And there have been leaders in the sports business who have um, helped get the ball rolling. And so I, for one, just continue to try to identify my North Stars um, as, it, you know, as it relates to now what. And so, Dan, your words are terrific. Um, you know, I came from, um, as many of you know, I came out of the NBA, I worked for David Stern, who I think really was forward-looking um, in, in his way on this topic. And really, it became part of your DNA, working at the NBA, to think about um, social justice and the, the power of sport in creating positive change in society. And so, you know, I, for one, am continuing to look around and see what the pro leagues are doing. Adam and I work together at the NBA. We both learned from David. And so whether it's um, a league like the NBA, whether it's um, activists like Dr. Lapchick at Central Florida, um, you know, in my life, I've, I've just been inspired by people like Robin Roberts, who have incredible stories. I think we should, all of us, seek out your North Star uh, because they can help teach you. Uh, through their words and their deeds, um, how to do this important work. So that's one. Um, the second point I'd make, Stevie, just in terms of you know framework, is um, when all these things were hitting, and you know s several months ago, and and we were all having our, our re reckoning. Um, I came up with this own framework in my own mind about how how I could be helpful, um, not only in my professional life but just as a personal matter. And so I came up with uh, my my four word framework, which is up, down, around, within. Up, down, around, within. So, you know, I'm a commissioner, so I have a different role than maybe many of the folks on this call who are working on a campus. But I just would share briefly what, I, what that meant for me, and maybe there's some transferability of these concepts to others. So for me, up meant, okay, the people I report to are the presidents of my schools. How do I communicate with them? on the importance of the Big East having some role here in whatever follows. How do I bring you know, the, my bosses, so to speak, together um, to try to come up with an action plan on, on what we would do as a group relating to our anti-racism efforts? That was my up. The down for me was how do I manage my staff? Because you know, we don't have a big staff at the conference office, but I had many, many staff who were very deeply affected by this. We had a very emotional response from within um, on the events of May and June and, have, and ever since. And so for me, it became critical to think about how do I deal with the people who report to me, who were looking to me as, as a North Star? You know, how do I communicate with them? How do I make this easier for them? How do I help and support them? That was my down. The around for me became, how does the NCAA as an association come together um, and, and benefit from our scale? to make a difference um, through our collective um, efforts. We have you know, D1, 350 schools, we have 32 conferences, we have the NCAA national office. You know, there's clearly gotta be a place here for some big group effort. 
um, as we, you know, as we again take advantage of our, you know, of our of our far flung nature and our influence to try to make a difference in a collective manner. That became for me sort of the around, and I have talked to other conferences about how we can join forces. And then last but not least, the within for me just was how each of us on a deeply personal level, you know, what we can do in our daily lives. You know, it just sort of was a reset about, you know, how I think about things. Do I have biases? Am I being thoughtful? in terms of how I'm handling particular situations? What reflections do I have about my upbringing? I mean, I grew up in a small town um, that was almost exclusively white and Christian. You know, I went to a school, a great school, but it was very white, University of Virginia. Went to a law school that was pretty diverse, UCLA. Worked on Wall Street, which was very homogenous. And, you know, frankly, I'm, I'm going to share, I, I've not had the benefit of, um, of a racial prism in terms of how I look at this, but I've been a woman in this business for 32 years, and there are still mountains to climb. So I have had the benefit of looking at this work through a gender prism, and that has inspired me and motivated me in many respects. So that was the within for me. So I'll stop there, Stevie. That, to me, is a framework, maybe, for how everybody on this call could think about, you know, how they can... Kind of attack the problem as they as they go forward. Thanks, Val. And I think that's really easy for folks to think about in their own worlds and translate that the up, the down, the within, and the around concept, right? Of of being able to apply that. Dr. White, Kevin, what can you add to this conversation? Boy, I don't know if I can add much after those uh, those first two speakers. Um, but it, I, I would be remiss if I didn't thank Bob for the invitation and, and Stevie, thanks for coordinating all of this and Alan Green and his committee and what an honor to be with, with Alan Dan. Uh, let, let me just say, I guess I see myself as, uh, I've already been teased about this, uh, this birthday thing, which I'm, uh, I'm, you can't see it, but I'm bright red over facially. Um, the fact that um, I am now officially a senior citizen, um, I think I come at this thing a little bit differently. And we're all products of our environment, and we all know that, and it's a terrible cliche, but it's true. We are who we are. It's part of our DNA. And I've always had, uh, you know, I've always had a supreme interest in pluralism. And, I, and I, I, I really, quite frankly, can't trace it all the way back uh, through seven decades, but I know that it's, I know where it, I know it's part of me because I feel it deeply. So this whole notion of allyship, I'm, I'm still trying to get comfortable with that syntax. Uh, of being an ally, uh, but I know I am seriously interested and committed to race and gender and have been for a long time. You know, it's the race and gender has been oppressed for some 400 years in this country. And my 40 years as almost as an AD or VP or both uh, have really led me to understand um, maybe the practicality of, of pluralism. And I, 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 can just, I can follow along and jog along with the theorists, uh, but at the end of the day, I'm a practitioner. I'm in the foxhole. I've been running athletics departments for a long time, and I've been very proud, very, very proud to, to do that. So if I had a couple of thoughts for our 400 people that are so terrific to, to, to kind of zoom in with us and, and participate here today, I, you know, the first thing I would say is uh, in terms of the underrepresented groups, um, again, race and gender, I'll stay with that theme. Uh, I think we need to be intentional. And un unfortunately, we're not. We're not terribly strategic. We're not very intentional. We kind of think things are going to change just because we kind of think they should change. And, I, and again, I, I think 
I look at the Rooney Rule, for instance. We're uh, and people have had real difficulty bringing that to college athletics, and they've had some different versions at different places, whether it be conference or institutionally. We're we're really in the in the construction phase of creating a hard and fast Rooney Rule here at Duke, uh, Duke centric. And, um, and that might be the last thing that I do here before I, I go to the clubhouse. But I am so intent on getting that done. And I think every school has to do that, public, private, depending on, on all your different you know, circumstances. And we all know what they are. And, and then the other thing I would say is, I, I think we really need to be a bit of a student of uh, how we got here and, and perhaps where it is we want to go. And I would put the student thing on the 400 people that are on this call, including me, and as well as on those underrepresented folks that, uh, that want to be in this business. We're talking about college athletics here. Um, have they really done their homework? Do they really understand this profession? Uh, the competition in these jobs has never been more fierce. It's crazy. I was telling a group the other day uh, in, a, in a call not unlike this one, uh, I, I think when I went to graduate school in the mid-70s, there were four institutions that offered a master's degree, a graduate degree in athletic administration. Last time I checked, there are 363 of those programs in our country. And so the competition's crazy. So I think a, a student on a couple of levels, one, we need to understand how we got here, and then we need to kind of come to grips with, okay, where is it we're going to where is it that we want to go and how are we going to go get, how are we going to get to that, that new reality? And then secondly, for the people that, that we, the underrepresented groups back to race and gender that want to be in this play with us in this profession, they've really got to do their homework. They, they've really got to become incredible students because the competition's never been more, more keen. And I, and I, I harbor on that. I teach an MBA sport business class with Nina King at our place. And, and I get these 40 bright eyed Fuqua, uh, top five, six business school in the country. And a lot of them want to come into college athletics, but they haven't done their homework. They really don't understand how this thing ebb and flows and they don't understand how it works. Shame on them. And so my point to this group is, let's, let's all become students. Uh, how we got here, where is it we want to go? And for the people that we want to be allies for, let's put them in some kind of a, a learning environment, uh, an institute, let's create a curriculum. Um, and, and I've got a lot of other thoughts, but I'll stop there. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, you know, the information I would take from you is uh, strategy and intentionality is really important in this space. We can no longer just assume that things are going to happen. And in that, it complements with the concept if you got to take thought and you got to put it into action. You can't just talk about all this stuff, right? Correct. You got to actually do something. And, and the learning component is super important about where we've been. There are a number of wonderful programs that are through NACTA through MOA, through the NCAA, um, through all these folks to put marginalized groups within the pipeline. And I think I would challenge and say, you know what, our hiring managers need to take action and stop saying this is a pipeline issue as well, right? There are qualified candidates that are there. We gotta find them, we gotta find them. So I, I will say to you over the years, I, I, I've said some wrong things. I probably not said the right things at all times. Um, and I remember it uh, more than one occasion when I would have said to someone, I don't see color. And I say that at that moment, because what I wanted to, what I really think I wanted to convey was that I value everyone and I don't define you by the color of your skin. However, I know now that that is wrong for me to say, I need to see color. 
I need to see color because that comes with an important history and legacy that I don't fully understand and I don't fully um, have knowledge of, but I believe that it is there and it has been hurtful to folks. So I guess this is sort of a confessional for you all. Has there, has there been a time when you said something maybe that now looking back you shouldn't have? Or how do you overcome this fear of saying, of, of not wanting to say the wrong thing, so instead you say nothing at all in that space? Val, I'm gonna put you on the spot first with this one. Well, I, you know, that's a great question, Stevie. I would say I've been largely um, sort of attacking this in listening mode. I mean, I found that sometimes the easiest way, the easiest icebreaker ice here is just to start it by saying, how are you doing? You know, how are you feeling? Um, as I mentioned, when, you know, when George Floyd um, and Ahmad and Brianna and the others, what, you know, when that was sort of a current event versus, you know, it's a continuing event now. Um, you know, I, sp I spoke to members of my staff and it was just as easy. I just wanted to check in and see how you're doing. And that in some ways was all it took. They were, they were eager to talk, you know. Um, black people on my staff and, and others who I reached out to. And, you know, I, I didn't have to do much at that point. I, I just felt like it was my job to listen. Um, and then, you know, take that and then try to t turn that into an action plan. I mean, that's kind of to Kevin's point about trying to be practical. You know, that's certainly been my MO is, you know, listen, absorb, meld that, you know, with my own experiences, meld it with my sense of, you know, what, what we can do. Um, Kevin made a great point about the, uh, the Rooney rule, and that is a hot topic now across the NCAA, conference to conference, school to school. And so I'm, I'm with Kevin, I'm kind of operational. It's kind of like, okay, now, now what do we do? So, you know, I, I probably have been more guilty of silence um, over my career than of saying the wrong thing. It's probably been more of a function of not saying enough. But, um, but again, I think, you know, for me, my, my approach has been to be in, in listening mode as much as possible and then to try to take it upon myself as a leader to go from there. Kevin? I, I think um, being fearful of saying the wrong thing is weak. And I think we're all guilty of that or, or we wouldn't be here over my four decades in, in, in pretty much the same place we were when I started. You know, we've talked a really good game. We've had a zillion conversations, uh, but we really haven't moved the needle. Let's just be, let's just be honest about it. And, 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 and so I, I guess I, I've come to the place where I'm really not fearful of saying the wrong thing. Uh, I, I'm more empowered to say the right thing, to say the thing that no one else will say. Um, I think we all need to be a little bit more courageous, maybe a hell of a lot more courageous. If it's really what we believe, then we should say it. Um, and I, I think it's a, a time, I was thinking about this overnight, where we need to really exert our will. Uh, we need to change the culture, change the paradigm. We've allowed the, the immediate paradigm to exist for a long, long time, a long time. And uh, exert our collective will. There's 400 of us on this call. If we all did that, we, we could really start to begin to move the needle. I, I, I'll just leave it right there. Dan, what can you share from your perspective? Uh, thanks. And, and yes, why I think listening uh, to Val's point is really, really a great place to start, an important place to start. And 
And um, absolutely, Kevin, courage is important too. Um, you know, this is an interesting topic and we do, we actually do trainings related to, you know, how to speak up, how to call people in, call people out. And, you know, for me, one of the things that I just try to do is do the best I can with what I have. And I know that sometimes I'm just going to screw it up. And, and when I screw it up, I have to apologize. And, um, you know, I, I learned this lesson, um, I've learned it many times over and over again. I guess I'm a slow learner, <laughs> but um, I learned it, I've learned it many, many times. And but I'll tell you one, one story. Um, one is uh, where I asked one of uh, my mentors, who's a black feminist activist and educator, to help me construct a one-page executive summary about the history of racism in our country. And when I made that request, she hung up on me. And I, I called her right back and she picked up the phone and she said, I can't talk to you right now. And she hung up again and she wouldn't answer my call um, for three weeks. And then um, when she finally did answer my call, um, what she taught me, which is, was a really important lesson about uh, saying the wrong thing. And that is that um, the difference between intent and impact. So, I, I believe that my intent was good. You know, I was trying to make it easier to introduce people to the history of racism, you know, and thinking about my audience as people are really busy, you don't have a lot of time and, you know, don't want to attend necessarily training after training. But even though my intent was positive, maybe benign, the impact was to suggest to this person who experiences racism every day that her history, that that history of racial injustice isn't worth the time it takes to read and understand and acknowledge generations of harm. Kind of to your point, Kevin, about, you know, studying. Um, and that impacted her greatly. She was really hurt by that. And so one of the things I've learned about overcoming this fear is that, you know, um, it's okay. I'm going to do the wrong thing. Yes, even when I intend to do the right thing, I still may unwittingly and unintentionally hurt someone else. That may be the impact. And when that happens, I need to apologize. And I need to try to make that right and learn. Apology can be powerful, right? And a commitment to not making that mistake again for folks. We're going to make mistakes, but we have to keep trying in this space. All right, we're gonna pivot a little bit and I'm gonna ask Kevin and Val to talk about our student athletes. They're our why for many of us who are on this call right now. How can we help them navigate their journey to allyship? Stevie, you know, for me, um, I, I feel really strongly about this and the, the longer I've been in it, the, the, I, I think the, the more committed I am to this line of thinking. We're, we are clearly in the leadership development business and sport as I continue to say, sport is the medium. Uh, for our, most of our kids, the lion's share of our kids aren't gonna play professionally. We know that, we know all those percentages. And, but, uh, but they're all gonna live great lives and they have the ability to really contribute uh, in so many ways. So we are clearly in the leadership development business. And so if, uh, if allies, the syntax of the day here, um, you know, with the contribution we can make to their respective journey is to really take that serious and, and to be true to that. And, uh, and, and so 
I, I find myself as of late, one of the, the words that's being used an awful lot as we're, as we're in this moment, all of us together, uh, listening, everybody kind of, you know, kind of respects the fact that maybe we didn't listen as intently as perhaps we could have, should have, might have. Um, I, I have to tell you, uh, I, I've been in, uh, I, I'm certainly not a person of color. I'm not black or brown. And, but I've been in the neighborhood for a long time, you know, as a recovering track and field coach and then being a, an athletics administrator uh, for 38 years. Um, I can tell you, I've really lived in, in, in that space to some degree. But we had an experience here at Duke, uh, maybe it was about four or five weeks ago on a Saturday. Our kids had asked if they could, if they could close down practice for a day and, and, and collectively march to the chapel across the campus. Uh, our entire team, uh, football team, pardon, pardon me. And then we kind of went back to an indoor practice facility and at least a dozen of our kids, um, uh, probably 10 African-American and, and, uh, and two white kids got up and told their story. And I'll tell you what, with all my experience to date, um, and by the way, I, I went to a predominantly African-American high school on Long Island. So you would think I, I had heard it all, seen it all, understood it all. I was riveted, uh, again, about five Saturdays ago with the stories of some of our kids and, and uh, the kind of life experiences they've had to endure or their families had to endure. So I, I, I'm really paying homage to this notion of listening. Um, I listened, and I, I think we, all, we, we continue in life to, to kind of think about what we're going to say before we're taking in what we're hearing. And uh, unfortunately, there's a disconnect there. I'm guilty of that for a long time. I have been, as I said, I'm gonna use the word one more time, I've been riveted by the most recent occurrence on our campus at this point in my career, to, to my shock, I have to say. So listening's a big deal and recognizing the fact that we're in the leadership development business at least is something that really jumps out at me and we need to take that in earnest and take it seriously. And, yeah, Stevie. So I'll just, you know, speaking from the perspective of, of a conference, I mean, Kevin's, of course, on the front lines dealing with the student athletes, but I think there is, there is a benefit the, and, a, and a value added that conferences can bring in, um, um, in, in a couple of ways. One is creating platforms for engagement. You know, find, you know, particularly among athletes of different schools. Um, and we've tried to do that. We have a, um, we call it kind of an advocacy platform. We, we named it B as in biggies, the change. And we are offering opportunities um, regularly for stakeholders within the conference, um, be they student athletes, coaches, administrators, others, just to kind of be together. Um, we'll maybe tee it up with a speaker to get it going. We can do uh, private chats so that they can break up into small groups. But I think that to give our student athletes, um, not necessarily, Kevin can do that on the campus, but in terms of trying to, again, bring some scale to the engagement, I think conferences can and should be doing that. And that's worked pretty effectively for us. Um, we're also working through our SACs. They remain, I think, critical components of, of this, um, both on campus, at the conference level, and nationally. I know National SAC has been very energized um, on this topic and a lot of great ideas and energy are coming out of that, that group. As we, we know, many of them are the, they're literally the best and the brightest among our student athletes. So I think to lean on them and to encourage them 
and to again um, create and facilitate these um, these engagement opportunities uh, through SAC is vitally important. Um, we are, you know, two more notes here. I think bringing in outside partners as needed is is good. We have a, we just cut a deal with Rise, which is um, growing in the in the college space. Um, they've been around for a while. They've got um, relationships with many of the pro leagues. Um, they're considered a leader in the kind of DE&I, prejudice, discrimination, racism, anti for all those three space. So we brought them in as an educational partner. And you know, they're they're, they know things we don't know. It's like Dan, Dan knows things we just don't know. So to have outside expertise come and help us help our student athletes is something that we should all be considering. And then finally, the last thing I'll note, and I think Kevin, Kevin's anecdote really you know, sort of um, brought it to life. I foresee um, increased activism um, across college sports by our athletes. I mean, you're starting to see it, I'm sure, in football. Kevin, I think we're, you know, we got to be ready for this in basketball, I would yes. suspect. And I think that's a plus. I mean, I think it has to be managed, and it's going to require a lot of communication um, among sort of coaches and their players or within conferences about you know, anthem policies or not, et cetera. But I think this is um, going to be an outgrowth of what's happened to student athletes, they wanna make their voices heard. They see themselves as role models. They see themselves as big men and big women on campus. And so I think they're gonna take um, to heart the opportunity to speak up. And so, um, you know, we're trying to find a way to teach them how to do that. You know, there, I think there is a way to do effective activism. It's not like, you know, you can just do it. I think there is a way to teach somebody how to be really good at that. Um, and so we're trying to, to do that as well. So I think those areas probably are ways that I think I can offer as a conference and um, how we can you know, help support this and uh, help as, as Kevin noted so well, turn these young people into the leaders of tomorrow on this topic. The RISE Foundation has been phenomenal. Uh, DePa has been working with them for a number of years. Give them a plug to go to their website, risetowin.org. Um, they've got many modules online for you to actually be able to download and lead your student athletes through those programs yourself and, and start the conversation. So um, bringing in outside partners to Val's point is great. But I think what I would impress upon everyone is that this can't just be a discussion that we're having every once in a while, once a year when we're having a diversity speaker or uh, once a term or frankly, after we see public murders of black and brown people. We need to be talking about this all the time with our student athletes. So Dan, what have you learned through your journey to become an ally? What can you share with this group here that you think helped shape your words and actions of today? Sure. So um, one of the most important lessons I've learned for myself is that um, going back to that stake, two-sided coin is, is my stake in white supremacy, in racism, in racist capitalism. And so that I can own that I am a racist anti-racist. You know, race, I grew up in a racist society, a society that benefits white people over people of color. And I benefit from those systems that elevate me as a white man. And so I need to look at that. I need to embrace that. And at the same time, I need to be and I'm committed to anti-racism. Um, and so that dichotomy is really uh, very precious to me uh, and very important in the struggle. Um, the, other, the other thing I would say, and I'll try to tell the story somewhat quickly, is that um, 
you know, folks talked, Kevin talked about the experience of listening to the stories um, of athletes and, um, you know, Val, you've talked a few times about listening and how important that is too. And so, you know, being in relationship with um, people of color, especially, um, I would say, deep and intimate relationships with people who are different than me um, is critical. And, and 11 years ago, I met a then 10-year-old boy, his name, um, I'll call him Henry, uh, and I watched him grow up inside an educational system where he was disciplined, suspended, diagnosed with various behavior and emotional disorders, placed in ever more restrictive programs, eventually out of his school entirely. And I thought, you know, given what I believed then about our society and culture that, well, this is just about him. It's just who, who he is and what he needs. And so that's the belief system that I ended up um, embracing at that particular point in time. And I was a management consultant in corporate America while I was getting to know Henry. And um, um, someone called me out of the blue and asked me to go and work with um, the Rochester City School District, which is one of the most poor, the poorest school districts in the country. And there I watched um, and saw the evidence of how so many boys, literally thousands of young black boys were on the same journey as Henry disciplined to suspended and removed, school days lost, self-esteem battered and broken. And startling was the fact that only one in 10 black boys entering that system as kindergartners graduated on time with their class, if they graduated at all. And it was then that I knew that what happened to Henry and many if not most of these black boys had much to, more to do with how they were seen and judged inside a racist educational system. Um, and still, you know, when I looked at what was happening to Henry and all of these black boys, and as much as it broke my heart, I still said to myself, you know, that's not your problem. It's the racist educational system. And that has nothing to do with you. You are no longer an educator. Um, and that's when I was taken aside by you know, many, many uh, people who came up to me, confronted me, um, and then educated and trained me so that I knew that, oh yeah, you know, this is your problem and you are a part of it. And I knew that I wasn't clean. As a liberal, even progressive, generous, loving white man, I was and am part of this problem. And if I'm going to have any power whatsoever, in doing the right thing and being an ally, I have to acknowledge that. Um, and um, so that's on the systemic side. And um, so the, I guess that the other thing I'll say about that is even though I saw my role in the system, I also wanna say that I know that the impact of racism hit me very personally because this young boy, um, Henry, who um, as a now 18 year old, young man walks out of his apartment with a hoodie on, a hood over his head drawn to hide, almost hide his face, his pants down, showing his underwear, strutting down the stairs. And one of the words that pops into my head is thug. And I know um, that, you know, part of my socialization was to look at even Henry, who I loved um, in a way that judged him diminished him, and even criminalized him. And that's what I've learned. 
um, through my experience that I'm a part of this. So powerful, Dan, so powerful. Um, I think through my lens, what I have found is that um, <clears throat> my, my black friends have publicly shared more about their experiences as a black person since we saw the public murder of George Floyd. And in response, I've seen a number of my white friends say, I'm gonna do better. So can you all share with us what it means to you to do better in this space of social justice and allyship. Again, taking that thought into action and just not saying I'm gonna do better. Dan, do you wanna start off with a response on that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for me doing better is, um, you know, and I go back to the ally conversation that we just had um, is to, you know, talk to my accountability partners, you know, like in the activist community, we actually have this role of accountability partner. So we would go back to the black abolition abolitionist network and say, um, what do you want? What kind of support do you need? And so, um, you know, I will then look at their demands, including defund the police. And I'll say, what is it that you're asking me to do to support you in that? Um, and then one of the other things that I would say, uh, you know, about, you know, doing, doing better is that when people ask, um, live in that discomfort. One of the things that folks asked me to do was to work with white men. And when someone asked me to work with white men on racism, patriarchy, and white supremacy, I said, who, me? I don't know anything about that. And to tell you the truth, I'd just rather work with marginalized people. I feel much better about myself. Um, but instead, um, they said, no, you know, you can talk to white men, you need to talk to white men. Um, and so I step into spaces and create communities with white men to work on these issues with them. And it's deeply uncomfortable and tremendously liberating. Thanks. Val, how can you do better in this space? Well, uh, you know, I, I think um, for me, um, to sort of paraphrase what, what Dan and, and Ke Kevin have noted, I mean, this, it feels deeply personal to me. So I, I don't feel a shortage of motivation here um, at all. I mean, if anything, I wish I had more hours in a day to spend on this. Um, you know, this confluence in our business of dealing with the coronavirus, digging out, trying to plan the unplannable. <laughs> um, and, and then, you know, absorbing, absorbing <clears throat> these, you know, these developments in our country and our, 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 you know, our cities is just, it's almost too much to bear. So I feel for one, feel deeply motivated on this. I, I, and again, I wish I could do more. I wish I could do more, but you know, what I, um, for me doing better is staying at it. I mean, for those of you on the call who are in a leader role, you know, you have an opportunity here, and I hope you're as motivated as, as we are to do what you can to keep at it and, you know, and use your framework. Again, for me, it was up, down, around, within, but whatever framework you have to keep at it, to stay persistent, because, you know, this can't die off. I mean, it can't be, okay, we're, we're sort of through this. It was another bad chapter in our history, and now we'll move on. No, it's got to be, this was the moment we all, you know, we all said this was the time. So, so to me, that's the leader part. Um, if you're not in a leader role per se, if you're not the decision maker at your um, school 
or um, at the conference office you're part of, or if you're part of NCA staff, I would encourage you to push at your leaders. You know, um, there's a way to do this, you know, to, to make sure they know this is still, you know, an area where we need help. So I, you know, keep the ideas coming, keep the pressure on, don't be afraid. You know, um, don't you be afraid to say the wrong thing to your boss, because that's what we need to hear um, from you. Um, we need to hear about your experiences. You're part of our, you know, our organizations. We need everybody in on this to push at us so that we can, you know, um, have whatever additional motivation we need to keep at it and do what we can do to, you know, to bring, to bring these, um, these aspirations um, to, to life. So that's, you know, that, those, Stevie, would be my thoughts on how leaders can keep at it, but the people who are, you know, are working for us can um, help us do our jobs by their continuing contributions. Kevin, what are your thoughts on how we can do better? You know, Stevie, I'm inspired by Val's uh, commitment, unbending commitment and motivation to do better, whatever that looks like to you uh, individually. Um, I, I think we need to really be committed to facilitating discernible change. I mean, that's what, that's what we're talking about here. And it comes in so many different ways. Um, we need to exhibit uh, courage. We've talked about that before. We need to be strategic, uh, being a little redundant here. We need to be, uh, I think, absolutely intentional. Um, do the right thing. I, it's another bad cliche when uh, folks aren't really paying attention, but to continue to do the right thing when sometimes it's, it's hard. Um, and be a change agent. You know, and I, I, if, if I can kind of take that, put the, you know, the practitioner hat back on for a second, uh, when we have searches uh, and have the opportunity to, uh, to recruit highly qualified role models for underrepresented cohorts within our, within our departments or within our universities, again, back to pluralism, race or gender, I think we need to take every opportunity to do that. I think we should hold ourselves responsible to, to do that. We need to build the bench uh, within our departments and, uh, and be very proactive and intentional in, in inviting uh, people at the uh, entry level, if not the internship level, entry level, uh, mid-staff level, upward staff level, and into the top spots. We need to really be intentional about, about recruiting uh, the pipeline word that we used earlier. Um, and some of that's pre-procurement. You know, the HR theorists talk about always taking an inventory of what's out in the marketplace, always paying attention. There are a lot of really good people out, out in the marketplace. And so we just really got to be, again, I think a heck of a lot more strategic. Um, and, 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 you know, we've had a program here at, at Duke, and I don't mean to talk about Duke so much, but that's what I represent. You know, and we call it ODI, Open Door Initiative. And we've had five, six, or seven ethnic minority um, interns every summer that come here and, uh, and spend the summer with us. And, and, and a lot of them are getting academic credit for some graduate program they're in. And, and these younger people are in their early 20s. And, and we've hired a bunch of them and or people that we know really well have hired others. Um, and I, I think we all need to kind of think in those terms. I, I think we need to be a little entrepreneurial to move, to get the needle moving. And once it starts to move, I, I, I think we can kind of we can kind of get it to really start moving. I mean, uh, again, 40 years we've had conversations, and we really have had very little movement 
uh, the time is now. We, we, we've got to get moving. Thank you. All right, panelists, we're going to switch to a question that came in through the Q&A. We're getting close to the end of our hour, so if there are additional questions from the group, please do make sure that you write those in. Um, and this, this question is for all of you, but not all of you have to answer. Uh, this question says, how can we as administrators, this person happens to be in marketing, address those fans who are so against public displays and protests fighting racism, especially those who are nowhere close to understanding? Stevie, I can be really almost belligerent. Get over it. <laughs> I like it. Just get over it. Yeah, and I, I would say that's just, that's the reality we face into is that, you know, if, if we stand for racial justice, there are always people on the other side. And the compassion to show for them is that, you know, they, those people who are yelling and screaming and who are making uncomfortable were socialized into the belief systems that we were all indoctrinated into. And um, so, you know, recognize that the people who are shouting at us, um, those same lessons came to us and, and we should have compassion for them as we challenge them, <laughs> Kevin, um, very boldly, we need to do that too. Educational moment, we need to have courage. Val, mm -hmm. would you like to add on this one? Yeah, well, I'll just sort of, this is real life for us. I mean, we, as, as some of you may know, we, um, we made a conference decision to um, visibly support, support the Black Lives Matter movement uh, with the display of patches um, on our men's and women's basketball team uniforms this year. And um, I, I have been the recipient of um, some of that pushback that you described, Stevie, just, just personally. Um, and I think uh, to Kevin's point here, it, you know, it, it's, it's very sobering that something that seems so basic, um, uh, you know, Kevin, I know Coach Krzyzewski spoken out on this as well, something that seems so right, um, so incontrovertible to me, could be construed in any other way. Um, and so, you know, we, we feel very strongly about this. We did this as a nod to um, the 80% of the, you know, men's basketball players in particular in our league who are black athletes. We have a very um, energized group of assistant coaches, men's basketball coaches in the Big East who have pushed at us to do more and to do better. And so we, we feel strongly about this, but I think it is just, you just make your decision. I don't think this is you know, on one side or the other here. And we, we decided we were going to go on the side of the right with this one and support our athletes. And so that's just, that's just the way it's going to be for the Big East. Courageous move, and it will move the needle. Fantastic. Okay, Dan, this question is for you, and it might just be our very last question. Uh, how can we work with individuals who refuse to recognize their white privilege? Well, the way I the way I've worked with individuals who refuse to acknowledge their white privilege is to um, say, well, when did you become white? And you were born, you know, with a certain color of skin, and all you have to do is go back and look at, you know, who leads corporate America, who leads who leads our government, who has the most wealth in our country. Who benefits the most? Who has who has the most power to make a difference in athletics or any place else? And I guarantee you, you're going to find that 
most of those people are white. And so white privilege is everywhere. And it's okay that you're uncomfortable acknowledging that, but it's there. I'm going to push the limit here because we've got another uh, question that's come in and I'm going to ask either Val or Kevin to do this one. How can lower or mid-level administrators move the needle within their organization and encourage senior administrators to be bold in standing up for change? Stevie, I don't know that I have any response other than some of the verbiage we've already used. I, I mean, I, I, I think you really just have to engage in um, in kind of the do the right thing communication with people you report to and um, and, and, and I don't know that you know we're at a moment in history here I think um, wherein we shouldn't be bashful about standing up tall for what we believe is right and I, I would encourage lower level and or mid-level administrators that are uh, communicating with somebody that is their superior or the person they report to uh, in that way. I, I, I just think it, it's that moment. It's that, it's, it's that important. It's that critical. Um, and I don't know if that there's any, there's any way to finesse it. Uh, I, I mean, I think you need to be respectful in all this business and we, we know, we all know how to communicate up and down the organization, but, but within, within the, the prism of respect and, and uh, to some degree being, being deferential, I, I, I think it's really important to, to state your case and, and, uh, and, and to draw the line in the sand. This is a draw the line in the sand moment. Hey, hey Stevie, I think uh, just to build on Kevin, I'll just note that I, you know, uh, there will be, um, I think within each um, conference office and institution now, a, a DE&I officer. And so to Kevin's point about maybe the mechanics of this, that person to me is the one that should be the conduit. So if you're a lower level staffer, it should be a mechanism for you to go to that person and let them manage this sort of from the ground up, you know, kinds of concerns. And then that should be their job is then to sort of sort that and then figure out how then to sort of work that through to the upper management level. I think that will be turn out to be a really good way to get this, you know, to get this process going. Great response, yes. All right, well, I'm gonna close up the shop today so we can stay on time. We need to talk more about this. We need to just do a Q&A session, frankly, and, and get it all out there so we can collectively learn from each other. Thank you to Dan and to Val and to Kevin for joining us today. Thank you to Bob and NACTA, as well as the uh, NACTA Steering Committee for Social Justice, Lee, Alan, Ward, and China. Um, we, we, we work for you all in this space. And, and we are going to keep moving and we want you to keep pushing us too. Sometimes it just takes a swift kick to get us going in the right direction at the right speed, but we'll take it. So at this point, I'll kick it over to Bob if he wants to come back on the screen for the formal close. Yeah, thanks Stevie. And Stevie, Dan, uh, Vale, and Kevin, thank you. Uh, thank you for your time, but more importantly, thank you for your leadership. Um, we all took a bunch of notes on this, me included. Um, probably the most important thing I took away as a white male in a leadership position is, hey, we're going to make mistakes. It's inevitable. We're going to make mistakes. But there's power in apology. It's important to say you're sorry and also learn from it as a leader. Let's not make them again. So you all, thank you so much for your candor. Thank you so much for being with us today. 
and uh, everyone be safe out there and hope to see everybody soon in person. And Kevin, happy birthday. <laughs> Stop. Stevie, thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, okay, God bless. Goodbye. God bless.